Well, I love the words that uh, President Reagan uh, opened that piece with when he quoted one of the founding fathers as saying, On you depend the fortunes of America. Act worthy of yourselves. Today, as we turn our attention to the words, I think what we're going to get is a glimpse of what it looks like for men and women who are followers of Christ in a season of so much strife to truly act worthy of ourselves. I do believe that the fortunes of America hang in the balance, and we must act worthy of ourselves. We're in a series right now that we started last week that is entitled, That's Outrageous. And it is uh, in reference to the fact that we're just living in an age of outrage right now. I mean, wouldn't you agree? People are just outraged about all manner of things. People are outraged because of uh, injustice. People are outraged because of, of violence, uh, whether it's violence from the police or violence between races. People are outraged over racial issues. People are outraged and marching in the streets and declaring that black lives matter. And other people are outraged because people are saying black lives matter and are marching in the streets. People are outraged by what the liberals are saying, and other people are outraged because of what the conservatives are saying. People are outraged over COVID-19. People are outraged that we're being told to wear masks, and other people are outraged that people aren't wearing masks. We're just outraged, aren't we? I'm outraged. You know what I'm outraged about? I'm outraged that nobody told me when this thing started that one of the side effects is that it causes all of your clothes to shrink. And it did it to all of mine. They didn't tell me that was coming. When I went off to college years ago, they said, watch out or you'll get a freshman 15. So I was able to be on guard for that. Nobody told me four months ago, be careful or you're going to get a COVID-19. Well, I found all 19 of them. Let me be the first to say, if there is a second wave coming in the fall, I don't want to call it COVID-19. I want it to be COVID minus 25. I will sign up for that pandemic. I've got my 19. I'm ready to take them off. On a more serious note, people are outraged. And they turn it on each other, don't they? We get ugly. In the name of setting things straight, we get so ugly with each other. So how are we, as the people of God and the family of God, supposed to respond in a season like this? Well, as we began to explore this last week, one of the most fundamental things that we can say is that we have to be very careful as God's people that we don't take sides and let that become our defining issue. That we've got to make up our minds that the first outrageous thing that we're called to do is just love everybody. Love the liberals and love the conservatives. Love the Black Lives Matter crowd and love those that despise the Black Lives Matter crowd. Love those who want to wear masks. Love those who hate wearing masks. Just love everybody and refuse to, to be pigeonholed and sucked into a perspective that says this is who we are and we're going to rail against all the rest of you. That we have this outrageous mission that supersedes all of these other issues. It doesn't mean that we don't care. It means that we have a greater calling. And last week we began to explore this outrageous mission that God has called us to. And the specific part that we want to hone in on this week is God's calling on our lives to an outrageous level of kindness. Now, that may seem like such a, a, a simple message, and it is a simple message, and yet I would contend that there is nothing that America needs more right now than to see Christians 
demonstrating love and kindness in a season when it seems that everyone else is just spewing venom and hate and distrust. And we're not going to fix that by marching or lobbying or posting 57 witty little things that are going to set the other side straight on our social media platforms. What the world needs to see is a loving, strong church that stands for the truth and demonstrates loving kindness toward everyone. Now, kindness is a very big deal to God. The Bible has a lot to say about kindness. We don't have time to cover it all, but we want to touch on some of the key pieces and and one great story about kindness that we'll focus on today. We begin in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, where Paul says, Make sure that you never pay back one wrong with another wrong. Instead, always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. You ever think about how much time we spend looking in the mirror, trying to make sure that we look nice to everyone else. I won't ask for a show of hands, but it would be interesting to know how many of us spent more than five or ten minutes looking in a mirror this morning trying to make sure we're going to look nice and then covered it with a mask. Yeah, that didn't work well. If we would spend as much time in front of God's mirror looking at our hearts and our lives we'd probably come a whole lot closer to being nice. If we could focus more on that, on being nice instead of looking nice. In fact, I would contend that is the biggest trick to looking nice is learning to be nice. If you want to leave a good impression on people, it's not going to be because your hair was perfect or your makeup was just right or because you had taken off that 19 pounds. It's really going to be about how you show kindness and attention to them. You know the old saying, people aren't going to remember what you say or how you look. They're going to remember how you made them feel. And isn't that the truth? I mean, you think about the people in your past that you can't remember much of what they said to you. You don't remember what they wore or how they looked on a given day, but you do remember how you felt when you were around them. Learning to demonstrate kindness is the key to that. And Paul gives us a great little primer on how to dress for success if we, if we want to look nice to the world. In Colossians 3.12, if you want to pull out the outlines that were in your bulletin when you came in today, we'll begin there. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, Brad, here's that word, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's a good description right there of what we all need to address ourselves in today and what we'll need to be wearing tomorrow and every day this week. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What would people say about a church that looks like that? What would they say about a coworker or a neighbor that looks like that? Paul said in Philippians 4 or 5, your kindness should be known to all. Be a little bit scary to know the answer to this, but wouldn't it be interesting to know if the people who know you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community, if if they could be polled to say, so what is the main thing that John Beck is known for? What is Caroline Keener known for? What's the adjective that would best describe them? Would kindness be likely to be the word that they would use? Just the most kind woman I know, the most kind man that I'm ever around. Paul said that's what you should be known for is your kindness now so why is kindness such a big deal well it's because kindness its relationship to love 
is what makes it so special. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, everything you do must be done with love. Love is the currency of Christianity, isn't it? It's what the Christian faith is all about. It's about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the currency of Christianity. So what's the relationship between kindness and love? Well, quite simply, kindness is love in action. We tend to want to relegate love to being just a feeling, and it is, in fact, more than that. Christian love is more than that. But kindness is love put in motion. It's doing something for others, not just sitting back and going, well, yeah, I do care about those people. I I am concerned. Kindness is not sitting on the couch and thinking good thoughts about them. Kindness is doing something for them. And the world desperately needs to see that. The most famous story that Jesus ever told, it is to this day, it's the most beloved story of Jesus, is about loving kindness. If you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10 to a familiar story. Those of you watching and listening online, even if you've never been in church in your life, I suspect you've all heard of this story. It is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, the passage in Luke 10 opens with sort of setting the stage for in which this story gets told. We read in uh, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That's important to understand. This is not a follower of Jesus who's just a seeker. This is a smarty pants. This is somebody who thinks he knows more than Jesus and he wants to trip Jesus up and make him look bad. So I want to ask him a hard question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love watching the exchanges of Jesus. If you've never done this before, it's it's worth doing. Somebody told me years ago, go back and reread all four Gospels and just home in on the dialogue and how Jesus interacts with people. Every time he meets somebody different, focus on on the interaction and what he does. One of the things you'll notice is he loves to ask people questions, even when he's being questioned in an attempt to trip him up. He's going to flip it and ask questions. So he's been asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now the lawyer's suddenly on the defensive, and he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, he hit a home run there. He pegged that. This is exactly how Jesus Answers the same question in other places. Jesus answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's trying to trip Jesus up. So he asks him a really good question, a question everybody wants to know the answer to. What have I got to do to get to heaven? That's a question most everybody at some level wants to know the answer to. And when they really get to the heart of the matter... That the way you live your life has to be built around loving God with everything in you and then learning to love other people the way that you love yourself. Well, hearing that, the expert in the law isn't crazy about that answer, even though he's the one who gave it. Because you see, in the first century, people struggle with the same problem that we're struggling with in the 21st century. And that is, there were a lot of people that they didn't love. In fact, there were a lot of people that they were prejudiced against and despised. And before we read the story that's immediately going to follow in Jesus' response to this question of who is my neighbor, you need to understand something about the people that he's going to use in the story because he's going to tell a story that has four characters, three Jews and one Samaritan. The Jewish people are going to be the victim and the two bad guys, and the Samaritan is going to be the hero of the story. Well, for us in the 21st century, that may not mean a whole lot. 
But to back up and contextualize this, I would just remind you, Jewish people despise just about everybody. If you were religious, you despised the irreligious people. You despised the unfaithful people. If you were Jewish, you despised the Gentiles. You despised the Greeks. You really hated the Romans, and you loathed entirely the Samaritans, those filthy half-breeds. They, they just were prejudiced in every direction that you could imagine, and it wasn't just them because other people were prejudiced against them. So all of this bias, all of this hate and prejudice is just right there at the surface, and, and there's a whole lot of religious hatred mixed in with that. And now Jesus is going to tell a story where the characters are the two groups who hate each other the most, the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus is, and he does all of this on purpose. He is just the master of this. The victim and the villains of the story are Jewish. And to add a cherry on top of this thing, the, the villains are both Jewish and religious leaders. And if that's not enough of a sting, the extra salt in the wound is, but the guy who is the hero is going to be the person that you hate the most, a dirty Samaritan. Friends, I'm not exaggerating to say this would be the equivalent of today going to a Klan meeting and saying, let me tell you all a story to illustrate how you should live your lives. And in the story, the victim and the villains are white folks. And the hero is a black man. It would be the equivalent of going to a gathering of uh, Jewish Holocaust survivors and telling a story where the victim and the villains are Jews and the hero is a Nazi. That's how radical this is. Are you with me? Do you follow how crazy this story is going to sound to the, the lawyer and the other people gathered listening to the story? And so with that as the backdrop, here's what Jesus says in response to the question, and who is my neighbor? By the way, you, you know what that question is about. It's about looking for a loophole. The lawyer, he knows I'm not going to love everybody. In fact, I could make a long list of the people that I do not love. So please tell me who is my neighbor because don't expect me to love all the people around me equally. And Jesus said, well, I'll explain who your neighbor is. man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. I have been down this road, and 2,000 years later, it's still a scary road. It's so remote and so desolate. It's, it's just it's hard to describe. It's such a winding road, and it's through such a desolate area. We stopped and got out and looked around part of the way uh, through on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I thought even 2,000 years later, I'm like, I would not want to walk down this road. It was notorious as a place that bandits would hide out. They'd get behind rocks with the roads zigzagging around, and they'd just hop out, and when they find somebody alone, they'd just beat the tar out of them, kill them, strip them, and take everything that they have. And that's exactly what happened to this poor Jewish man. Well, he's lying there unconscious. Looks like he's more dead than alive. And a priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And when he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. That's two days' wages. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. 
Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That is a grand story, isn't it? It hadn't lost anything in 2,000 years. You want to know what the heart of Christianity lived out looks like? It looks like that. Now, there's so much that we could learn from this story, and our time is limited. And, and Brad, as you were talking about starting a service at 9 o'clock and you being here by 10 o'clock and how people enjoyed you cutting it short, you scared me a little bit because our people don't understand what that feels like at all. They've never experienced that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to say this in short order. Just two things that I, I want to point out from this story that are instructive for us. And the first one is this story teaches us a lot about the three attitudes that we tend to have toward people in need based on the three different people who encounter the man lying in the road. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, on the front end, you're going to want to look at this and decide which of these is you. And, of course, we all want to be the Samaritan, but let me just blow that idea up. You are not one of these three people. You are all three of these people, and so am I. Because the reality is we've behaved like all three of these folks, and sometimes we'll behave like all three in one day. Sometimes we'll get it right, and other times we'll veer in this direction and other times in that direction. So just realize we're guilty of all three here. The first one is the attitude that says, well, I could just keep my distance, and I really should keep my distance. It is the attitude of avoidance that says, out of sight, out of mind, not my monkey, not my circus. I don't have to deal with that. Verse 31 by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by, saying to himself, it is not my responsibility. It's very easy to live that way today, isn't it? The culture that we live in, because we move so quickly, we stay so busy, and it's just the way that we live. You can just go 60 miles an hour all day long, and when you do have to come home, you press the button, you raise the door to the back cave, you zoom in, and you lower the door to the back cave, and you never even have to interact with your neighbors, Right? We can just live insulated, isolated lives, and whatever anybody else is struggling with or hurting over, that's their deal, not my responsibility. So easy to overlook the things that are happening all around us. We can make a long list of, of the different kinds of suffering and pain that people are, are in that we can just be blind to. It's easy when you live in a place that's as affluent as the Eastern Shore to ignore the fact that in our state alone, more than 800,000 people live below the poverty line. We can hear that and go, oh, well, that's sad, but it sounds pretty generic. Can we put a figure on that? That means as an individual, you live on less than $12,500 a year. If you're a family of four, it means you live on less than $25,000 a year. How does anybody do that? Over 800,000 people in Alabama live there. More than 262,000 children in Alabama live at that place. But here's the really staggering thing to me. 47% of the households in America where a family has just a mother as the head of household and no dad present, 47% of those families are living below the poverty line in Alabama. But it's just so much easier to ignore that stuff and to just say that's their deal, it's their choices that got them there, not my responsibility. It's very easy to live like the, the priest did. The second perspective is that of of the levite and by the way this is not a gene salesman he's not going to sell you some 551s a levite is a a helper in the temple so both of these are professional religious guys a good reminder that 
religious people will be some of the best people you'll ever meet in life. And then other religious people will be some of the meanest, most uncaring people that you'll ever meet in life. Nobody meaner than a holy, hateful person, is there? Well, there's a couple of them in this story. The Levites, the second one. His attitude is, I can be curious, but uncaring. It's that morbid curiosity. It says, in the same way, a Levite also came there. He went over and looked at the man and then walked on by the other side. The thing that stands out that's different about him, when the priest came along, he was like, whoo, that looks bad. And he's just going to stay as far away as he can. But the Levite took a different approach. He's like, ooh, that's a mess. I think I want to look closer. I want to roll him over and see just how bad off he is. I'm going to have a story to tell when I get to town. He's curious, but he's not willing to get involved to do anything to help. We may say, well, I would never do that. I'd never have that attitude. How many times have we nearly caused an accident because we were rubbernecking so bad when we passed an accident? Now, we had no intention of stopping and getting out to see if we could help. But we were going to do our best to get a good picture in our minds of what happened so we could tell the story. It's just a good reminder that curiosity stares, kindness stops. A lot of people say that they love to study the steps of Jesus. I think we would do well to study the stops of Jesus. Do you realize that nearly every miracle that happens in the Gospels, it happens because Jesus got interrupted and he was willing to stop. He was willing to pause and just just press the pause button and whatever he was doing to give attention to someone who was hurting, someone who was in need. And because he was willing to stop and be interrupted, something amazing happened. Curiosity stares and kindness stops. The world is desperate to see us be the kind of people who don't just stop and stare and tell a story. And post something on on social media. Aren't you by now just sick to death of everybody straightening everybody else out on social media? Just spewing their venom and their their cutesy little things that are going to just show how stupid the other side is. And at the end of it all, the world just looks and is sick to their stomachs watching Christians behave this way. The world is so hungry to see us care enough to show kindness. And that's what we see in the third attitude is an attitude that says I can stop and show kindness. The Samaritan shows us that kindness is love in action. It says the Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him and he acted on that. You know Paul reminds us of something very important in Galatians 6 7. He talks about how you're going to reap what you sow and in describing what that looks like it says he says The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. And he'll have to show for all he'll have to show for his life is a crop of weeds. The reason that I pause and take us to that verse is because it's a great reminder for us that when we ignore the needs of others, Paul says that you're doing two things. One, you're also ignoring God because when we encounter someone in need, that's an invitation from God to bring the kingdom of God to bear right there, to bring the love of God to bear. But he says when we do that, we're ignoring God and we're just being selfish. That's what it's rooted in. Our lack of kindness is just about selfishness. I don't want my day to be interrupted. I don't want to have to spend the time and energy and money to do anything here. 
Solomon gives us the converse of this, the other side of the coin in Proverbs eleven seventeen, when he says, but when you're kind to others, you help yourself. It feels like it's going to be so costly for you, and yet at the end of the day, we benefit so much from taking the time to help others. So let's jump ahead now and ask the most fundamental and important question of the day, and that is, in practical terms, how can I, how can you, how can we become kinder people? Well, the story gives us at least four very specific applications for how we do some things differently to, to be kinder people. And, and I know some of you in the room are far better positioned than I am to be preaching this sermon because you, you practice this so consistently. But regardless of where we are on the spectrum, we put these four things into practice. We will demonstrate love more faithfully. The first is this that we learn from Jesus' story is I must slow down enough to see the needs of people around me. Verse 33 says, when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. It's a reminder that kindness starts with pace of life and vision. Sensitivity begins with seeing. You can't care until you're aware. And pace of life is a big part of this. If we're just going wide open all the time, we will miss what's going on with other people. It cuts me to the quick to think of the times in my life when I have passed through a room full of people or been involved oftentimes in a ministry setting and I did what I needed to do and moved on to the next thing and only after the fact did somebody say, did you, did you not realize that so-and-so was there and they were just tears streaming down their cheeks because they just lost a loved one. They just experienced this, this terrible pain in their life and I'm thinking, I, I never even, I don't think I ever even looked at their face. I never was even aware. I was so focused and moving so quickly toward the next thing. I never even saw it. I never even felt it. I missed out on showing kindness and love because I was just moving too fast. You know, in generations past, we, we hardly ever do this today, but there was a, a greeting that people would frequently use, and it was just the word Godspeed. You ever hear people say that still today? Just Godspeed to you. Heard a comedian laughing about how fast that must be. He's like, you know, you sort of expect on a 747 when you're reaching altitude, the pilot to come on and say, we're now at 34,000 feet and cruising at God speed. You know, it's, you expect that to be really fast. But a wonderful Scottish pastor taught me an important lesson. He said, I have finally learned from these people that I serve who live a very different life from what I was accustomed to in the city. He said, I've learned what God's speed is. And he said, apparently, it's about three miles an hour. When God took on flesh and lived on earth, he apparently never went much faster than about three miles an hour. And the special thing about three miles an hour is that's just sort of a casual walk, and it slows you down enough that you can't hardly miss anyone. It slows you down enough that it's easy to really pause and look people in the eye and ask them, how are you doing? And listen to their answer and see what's in their eyes and really care about what's going on. And then take the time to do something about it. But it starts with slowing down enough to see the needs of people around us. When we do that, we will discover that all around us are people who are struggling with fear, loneliness, anxiety, depression, loss. That there's a world of hurting and needy people all around us. We just have to slow down and pay attention. 
The second thing I can do to become a kinder person is I must learn to sympathize with other people's pain. It says that when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. He didn't just go, oh, that's bad. He actually felt something in here for what was going on, and that's what motivated him to act. But some of us, and some of this I know, you know, just as fundamental as our wiring and our spiritual gifting, some of you in the room, your mercies, and you feel stuff before it even happens. Some of you feel other people's pain before they feel their pain because you are just gifted as a mercy giver, and you are just wired to share in the hurts of others in a way that ministers to them and to you too. God bless you for that. I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I wish that I naturally had your compassion. I don't. So the rest of us have to work at it. And so how do you do that? How do you learn to be more compassionate and to share in what other people are doing? I can answer part of that for you in two words. Listen better. Some of us are lousy listeners. One of the things that I love about my wife is that she just tells it straight. She doesn't polish it. She will just tell the truth, and she tells me the truth. And early on in our relationship, she let me know, you're a lousy listener. She did. You know you did. So I've been working on it. She pointed out, she was, she was so right. Made me, you know what made me so mad was how right she was. Like I wanted to set her straight, and I couldn't because she was just so right. But I've really been working at it. We can learn to be better listeners. One of the things that I have learned that, that we need to do is we need to learn to listen like we're on first dates. Do you remember what that was like? Guys, ladies tend to be better listeners than we are. They don't have as much to listen to, by the way. I mean, it's a fact. Women speak twice as many words as, as men on a typical day. So you do have an advantage, ladies. You do. John's nine for me. Yeah, I didn't plan that one. Sorry. The train is off the tracks. So we're going to get back on now. Ladies do tend to be better listeners is all I was meaning to say. So, guys, for our benefit, we need to learn to listen like we did on first dates. Do you remember how you were on that first date when you went out for the first time with your, your wife-to-be? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How did that feel? Tell me more about that. Active listening. We're engaged. We really care. You check that same guy 10 years later. You're so comfortable with each other. You're raising two kids in diapers. The wife says something, and 30 seconds later, the guy goes, Did you say something? She's like, Yeah. What was it? Oh, yeah, your hair's on fire. You know, we're, we're just so tuned out. We don't listen. Just listen better. And ask questions. Jesus was the master of asking the right questions. And I, I really have learned that one of our fundamental problems is that we ask the wrong question in that little dialogue in our heads. It, it, do you have little conversations in your mind as you go through the day? Or am I the only one who does that? that where there's like a running commentary in your head of, of what's going on or what you would say to different situations. And in my head... I naturally want to ask the wrong question when I encounter somebody who's broken, someone who's hurting, someone who's in need. Here's the wrong question. What is wrong with them? Why are they acting such a fool? What is wrong with them? That's the wrong question. Here's a better question. I wonder what happened to them. You know what the difference is between those two questions? 
The first one is focusing on all that is still lacking and how far they still have to go. The second question is focused on what all they have already survived and been through to get where they are. Jackie and I have a mutual friend who who now is a good friend. And I got to know this person through Jackie. But years ago when I first met her, I didn't like her. I, I met her through Jackie. And the first several times that I was around her, I just came away thinking, my goodness, this person is just loud. They're abrasive. And they're a bit vulgar. I just don't want to be around this person. I don't like this person. But Jackie had seen something more. Jackie had gotten to know this person. And Jackie started telling me her story. And I got to know this person better alongside Jackie and got to hear her story. And suddenly my perspective changed. Because you see, I started out focused on all that was missing and how far she still had to go. But when I heard her story, I was so blown away by all that she had been through and how much she had overcome and how far she had come. And now, this is truly one of our dear friends. Now, the things that used to drive me crazy, I don't even notice that stuff anymore. I don't know if it's gone away or just my heart has changed that much. But now, when we're around this person, I just want to tell other people, hey, if you don't know this person's story, you need to hear it because this is a wonderful story of the grace of God and somebody persevering through incredible hardship. I mean, this person may not look like it, but they have been through the worst that life can throw at someone, and they are still coming out on top and pressing on. We need to learn to stop and ask, I wonder what they've been through, instead of saying, what is wrong with them? We have to, to learn to sympathize And then thirdly, I must seize the moment to help. Don't delay, don't wait, don't procrastinate, do it now. The Samaritan, when he saw this, he went to the man. He poured on olive oil and wine on his wounds. Doesn't it feel like he's about to make a Samaritan salad? I'm expecting he's going to slap on some lettuce and croutons next. It's like, sounds like he's making dressing there. I'll have the olive oil and wine dressing, but he's using what he has, wine because of the alcohol to cleanse it and Olive oil was used medicinally like a Band-Aid, basically, and then he covers it with cloth. The long and short of it is he's just doing what he can with what he has. It's not perfect, but he's not going to wait until he feels like it. And I think that becomes a, a, a tripwire for us a lot of times, a stumbling block, that, that we're waiting until the moment when we feel like being kind to do something kind, and it can't be that way. It has to be the reverse. If you wait until you've got the right feeling to do the right thing, you won't do it very often. You you can't feel your way into the right actions. You're going to have to act your way into the right feelings. I hope all the married folks in the room and watching and listening online know that one by now. Because I guarantee you, if you've been married for any length of time, you have gone through seasons when you did not feel loving toward your spouse. Anybody ever feel that way before? Yeah, I knew nobody's going to say anything because your spouse is too close to you. Everybody feels that. You go through seasons where it's like, I don't feel the warm fuzzies at all. I don't feel Twitter painted. I don't none of that. I'm not feeling it. But you can't afford to let your actions depend on your feelings. If you will behave in a loving, caring way, those feelings are going to come back. Well, the same is true here. We have to choose to act in ways that are kind and loving regardless of how we're feeling. I doubt that this guy was riding down the road going, oh, I just feel like helping somebody out. I just hope I can find somebody in need because I just feel the need to bandage some wounds and spend some money on a stranger. No. 
You just got to act in the moment. Paul said in Galatians 6.10, when we have the opportunity to help anyone, we should do it. Just do it. Be willing to be interrupted. Be willing to get involved. And it may just feel like in the moment, this is just happenstance, this is random, that I came along, but you need to be alert to the fact that it's very likely that this was a God-planned encounter. And can I just go ahead and give you a friendly warning? Here's the disclaimer for the sermon today. It's coming. It's coming for you this week. You go ahead and prepare yourself. Interruption is coming your way this week. Brad knows what I'm talking about when I say this, but I got it all this past week. You plan a sermon, and it's going to eat your lunch all week long. Whatever you're going to talk about is going to happen to you all week long while you prepare for it. So I knew when I started preparing this week, I, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I'm going to have a week filled with interruptions. And I did. You're going to get interrupted this week. There's going to be a situation where you're going to have to choose whether to get involved and help somebody who's hurting or whether to go, mm, I don't really have time for that. And you can't afford to just base your response on how you're feeling in the moment. Solomon said in Proverbs 3.27, Do everything you possibly can for those who need help. If your neighbor needs something that you have, don't say, Come back tomorrow. Give it to him immediately. So when you hear that someone is facing a great loss, a job loss, a lost family member, they get bad news medically, don't wait you let that be the invitation to do something right then, to, to step in, to help, to listen. And remember that so many times the, the very best tools that you have for showing kindness and bringing healing in another person's life are your ears. Just taking the time to listen to someone who's hurting is such a big part of the, the equation and what you can do. And if you're Stopping to help somebody who's really hurting. Remember, the deeper their pain, the fewer your words need to be. You just listen more and talk less as their pain level is higher. And then that brings us to the fourth and final thing that I'll say about learning to be kinder, and that is I must spend whatever it takes. It's just a reminder that there is a cost to kindness. It's going to cost you some time, some energy, oftentimes some money. The Samaritan put the hurt man on his donkey. That means the Samaritan isn't riding the donkey anymore. It means he's walking. He took him to an inn. There he cared for him. The next day the Samaritan took out two silver coins, gave them to the man who worked at the inn, and said, take care of the hurt man. If you spend more money on him, I will pay it back to you when I come again. Sacrifice is a fundamental part of following Jesus. He is the one whose example we imitate, and sacrifice was his lifestyle. It's going to cost us something. The world needs to see in the church a willingness not to just do convenient Christianity, but to live in a costly manner. That's why this is outrageous kindness. It's doing what others wouldn't do because it's what our master would do. Being willing to give our time when we didn't really have the time. Being willing to spend the energy when nobody's investing back in us. Being willing to spend money that maybe it wasn't convenient right then to spend that money. Those things, by the way, are the muscle of ministry. Time, energy, and money. Without those, you can't do ministry. Without those, there wouldn't be a new church in Sapala, Nigeria. There's a cost involved if we're going to show love and kindness to others. So what's the story all about? What's the bottom line for us? Well, it's about who I'm supposed to love. 
and how I'm supposed to do it, what that looks like. Jesus concluded by saying, which of these three men do you think was really a neighbor to the man who was hurt by the robbers? And the teacher of the law said, the one who helped him. So Jesus said, then you go and do likewise. Friends, there is the homework assignment for the week. Go and do likewise. Slow down. Look. Pay attention. Listen. Feel it. Care. And do what it takes to meet a need. Remember Proverbs nineteen seventeen, Being kind to the poor is like lending to the Lord, and he will reward you for what you have done. So I want you to consider, who is it around you this week that is hurting? Who in your life do you know is going through a season of fear, anxiety, pain, struggle, that they sure could use some help, some love, some attention? I close with one final word from Ephesians 2.8. It says this, God saved you through faith as an act of kindness. You had nothing to do with it. Being saved is a gift from God. Ultimately, the reason that we show kindness to other people is because God has lavished his kindness on us. When we didn't deserve it, we couldn't do anything to earn it. And so now the result of that is we just spill over that love and kindness toward other people. Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer right now? God, we pause and say again, thank you. Thank you for your love, for your kindness toward us. No one's ever done anything as kind for us as what you did for us with the sacrifice, the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus, with his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. God, you showed us kindness and favor when you extended grace so that we could could know forgiveness what it's like to be clean to belong to be declared the sons and daughters of god and we thank you for that it may be that right now it occurs to you that you haven't experienced that yet maybe today you realize i want to be a kinder person i want to be a different person but i i don't think i've experienced that thing of the kindness and forgiveness of god in my life Hey, you don't have to clean up your acts to get there. You just need to open your heart to receive that. If that's where you are right now, whether you're in the room or watching online, why don't you just pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in what you've done for me with your death for my sins. I'm asking you to come into my life. Forgive my sins and make me new. I want to be different. Make a kinder, loving person out of me. Best I know how I'm giving you control of my life. Father, I thank you for hearing and answering those prayers. Thank you for gifts of forgiveness and life change that are pouring out right now. There are others of us who belong to God, but we know the reality is we need to put into practice the lesson that Jesus taught through this story. Why don't you just... Pray an honest prayer of confession if that's where you are and say, oh God, forgive me for the times that I've been too busy, too uncaring, too selfish. I don't want to stay that way. Teach me to be a loving and kind person in a world that's hurting right now. And then would you do a dangerous thing? Would you invite God this week to give you opportunities to show love and kindness to someone who's going to be in your path, who's hurting and in need. 
God, I pray that you would continue what you've started in us. Make us to be men and women who look and think like Jesus, who love like Jesus. Thanks for your patience with us. Thanks for your continuing work in us. And we pray this in the wonderful, matchless name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.